Uh, today is uh, January 28th, 2024, and we're in Lesson 11 of our class on contentment. This is Part 5 of Learning Contentment. And there's, I encourage you to find a seat up close so you can participate. So we've got, uh, the schedule is this class today, which is the last of the learning contentment. And then uh, next week, uh, I'll be out of town. And the week after, February 11th, then we'll conclude the class. And in that class, uh, I have a number of common objections to uh, why uh, discontent may seem called for in our lives that we'll take a look at. We won't get, we're not even going to try to get through all of those, uh, but I would also like to have some time for uh, objections that are in your all's mind that we haven't addressed in this class. So it'll be much more of a workshop and a discussion than it is a presentation for that last class. So be sure to think about things that you would uh, want to have answered, and we'll do our best to try to put a bow on it and wrap it up and bring it to a close at the next, the next lesson. So today, we want to look at something very specific uh, that has a, a broad umbrella to it, and I think is uh, easy to forget as one of the benefits in the Christian life. But before we, before we get to that, I'd like to set it up by saying that one of the things, one of the goals that I've had in this class is to structure it in a way that we've been able to paint a sufficiently lovely picture of what contentment is and why it's desirable so that you will be inclined to want to increase the contentment that you have in your life. That the life of contentment and pursuing contentment would, would be something that is um, a worthy endeavor for the whole of your life. So in other words, I, I hope you've been able to say, I'd like that for myself. I'd like, I'd like more of this contentment. But that notwithstanding, uh, you might be thinking that the obstacles that keep you from being content are so enormous or that the pursuit of contentment and how we've described it is so impractical given your particular set of circumstances that you might be thinking, Dave, the brochure looks awfully nice, but I don't think I'll ever take a vacation there. It seems that, yes, it's lovely. You've got a good mix of colors, but uh, be realistic, Dave. We're never going to get there. And I think that is appropriate. Uh, it's a picture of something that is truly marvelous, and there's a sense in which it is out of our reach. The power to be content doesn't reside uh, natively within ourselves. Now, it does build on previous work. I want to be clear that contentment is something that's attained marginally or incrementally. You're not going to wake up one day and find yourself floating down the perfect river of peace. That isn't going to happen. But there's no reason why today has to end with more discontent than it started, or that today cannot end with more contentment than what you had when you started. 
And the good news is that there is a way that there, there is a way that you can be enabled to be content, even if you don't feel like you're in possession of that ability right now. And so the opening part of this lesson is called strength and power. Uh, that's what we need. If you, if you can't do it by yourself, if the, the weight of discontent is so heavy that you cannot lift it from yourself, you need more strength and you need more power. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is strength and power in the pursuit of contentment. So I want to look at uh, three sets of verses, but we're going to take some time here to approach it a couple different ways. Um, as we open this class, uh, we looked at this passage from uh, Philippians. We looked at 4.11 and 4.12, Paul saying that uh, I've learned to be content, I've learned to be abased, I've learned how to abound. We looked at the abased and abound part in our last uh, lesson. But uh, he says, he says I've, I've learned this state of contentment and everywhere and in all things I have learned to be full, to be hungry, to abound, and to suffer need. And we discovered why we find ourselves in different circumstances. But this verse 13 here has a remarkable claim to it that I hope to, to bring home today. He says, I can do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That, there's a lot being said there. Whatever is being said, it's a lot. If Paul says, I can do all things, we should take special notice of how important that language is. And then if we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and that whole opening passage of 1 Corinthians 10 we saw was given to us, Paul is saying, I want you to be reminded that our fathers, they were in the wilderness, they pulled all kinds of shenanigans. They didn't believe. They were complainers. They were murmurers. And this led to all kinds of disastrous results for them. And these things have been recorded so that you might be able to uh, learn some lessons. And in particular, he says that no temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation that he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So uh, I, I added that he in brackets there to keep it ever before us that the way of escape is, is not some path hidden that just sort of a, emerges mysteriously. It's linked to the God is faithful part. There's a path because God is faithful and he creates this path. But in both of these passages, and they're both related to the idea of contentment. Paul's saying, I, I can do all things and be content. And there's this way of escape, so I don't have to murmur and complain. I, I wonder, how do these verses change in our mind if we paraphrase them, if we look at them a little differently? So let's, let's look at them paraphrased. And this is my paraphrase. You might have your own. But Philippians 4.13 might just as well read, whatever set of circumstances I find myself in, under whatever imposition God makes upon me, my mind can be at peace and I can rest in God's rule over me because of the strength Christ himself gives me. I'm hoping to capture some of the ideas that he's relating in this Philippians passage, but to make it in sort of a different active voice to say, look, there's, there's a lot going on here, but whatever is happening to me, 
and forget the abased and abound and wanting need and having plenty, but whatever circumstances I find myself in, however I am being, I am being imposed upon, I can be at peace. I can rest in God's rule over me because Christ himself is giving me strength. And if we look at that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 passage, we see God is faithful and he will make the way of escape from whatever difficult circumstances it has pleased him to place me under so that I may rest peacefully and not resort to complaining, murmuring, or being vexed of mind. You see, if we change the idea of what this path of escape looks like and instead uh, picture it not so much as a way out of the circumstances but as a way of being free from under the curse of the circumstances, under the difficulty of the circumstances, we realize that we don't have to change our venue to find contentment, that whatever it is that God is pleased to exhibit as a rule over my life, I can rest in peace and not resort to complaining, murmuring, or being vexed of mind. So there's a lot going on with I can do all things. We mentioned earlier that that's maybe, unfortunately, the... um, the uh, slogan for eighth grade boys basketball teams or soccer teams or something, and how inappropriate that is. And we see that this way of escape business is there so that we wouldn't sin, but also so that we wouldn't be vexed. There's something going alongside that. So here are my paraphrases. Do you think these paraphrases capture the sentiment of what Paul is saying? These aren't memory verses. I don't want you guys to write them down and say, oh, I need to memorize. No, these are my paraphrases. This is what helped me think about it. But what do you think? Is it a reasonable paraphrase to capture the essence of the Philippians passage? you have any quibbles or can we change it at all? All right. So let's ask a couple of questions then. We've, we've got these ideas being thrust upon us that are very powerful. But if Christ gives us strength... What is the strength to be content? How do, how, how do you see strength? How, how would you know if you were strong? What does escaping from temptation even look like? Now, it's one thing to put these words in our head, and we should. They should be in your memory verses, right? We, we, should, we should be memorizing these things and thinking about them. But if Christ, in fact, came over and made you strong, how would you know it? Is it possible that you might possess strength and not use it? Is that possible? And as for the second passage, is is it possible that there's a way of escape and you can't find the trailhead? You can't find the opening? You can't find the door? Are those things possible? Well, I I think they are. Um, I think that's often what causes us to stumble in our circumstances is we are not... uh, looking at it the right way. But let's look at one more passage to help solidify this sense of strength and power. And we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 9 and 10. And he, that is the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I, would, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, going back to that 
Philippians passage and the other Corinthians passage, Paul is clearly saying that he is strong. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. He's, there's, you, you cannot escape the fact that Paul says, I'm not weak, I am strong, right? And he is also saying that he can do all things. If you can do all things, you've got to be a reasonably strong individual. And the word behind this idea, the Greek here speaks of real, genuine power. The power to bear up under duress. The power to accomplish something. The power to be enabled. That's the kind of power we're looking at. One way of interpreting these voices, uh, these uh, verses um, that w- perhaps it'd be uh, good for us to remember that we, we want to make sure we get, it, we get it right. Paul, when he's talking about possessing real strength and power, he's not saying these are slogans. He's not saying these are words of encouragement. They're words of, they're statements of fact. This isn't a, you go girl, you got this. This isn't, you can, you can do this. I've got confidence in you. Uh, it was in the early 2000s, uh, the snap song, I've got the power. This isn't, this isn't someone saying, I've got the power. This isn't a mind game to help someone push them over the edge to do what they never thought they could. But how is it Paul is actually empowered or strengthened? I mean, that, that's, that's the, the answer we're looking for. If Paul says, I've got strength, I've got power, I am enabled, but how? Well, mechanistically, we'd say the answer is grace, right? But that really doesn't answer the question. If you're looking for what does that mean, what is grace doing that makes Paul powerful, that makes him enabled to do all this. The correct answer is grace, but that doesn't really tell us a lot, I don't think. Um, when Paul says, I've been enabled by grace, he wasn't using a punchline. He wasn't using a different kind of slogan of just saying, I don't know, it's all by grace, and somehow that takes care of the problem for me. You know, is grace real? Is grace something that does something to other things? Is, it, is there power behind it? What, what do we mean by grace? And what do we mean by uh, how it is being effectual? And I think it helps to look at the context of this Second Corinthians passage. You guys remember why Paul is speaking these things? What's going on in this Second Corinthians 12 passage? Anybody remember the context of it? I think it's helpful to see all this. Paul is saying, I've got difficulties in my life that I just cannot bear up under. I can't do it anymore. He says, I've got a thorn in the flesh because of some big revelations and understanding that I was given. I've got thorns and I can't do it. God, there's this messenger of Satan and I... We are, I don't know what it is. I don't think anybody knows what it is. But it was obviously enough to drive Paul to talk to God about it on a number of occasions and says, look, I can't do this anymore. You've got to get rid of this problem. This difficulty in my life has to be 
removed. That's the context for what Paul is saying. And each time he asked, he was denied. God said, no, not going to do it. No, that's the answer to your prayer. Well, uh, at some point, though, during this difficulty, God speaks to Paul. That's what it says, and he said to me. That's what the he said to me is coming in. God explains to Paul that these conditions are necessary. I need these conditions in your life, Paul, um, so that your pride won't spike. You've got a lot of revelation. You've been given a lot of understanding, and you need this so that you don't become too proud. God doesn't want Paul to sin. So he presents these difficulties in his life and says, this is the new normal. This is how you're going to live with these difficulties. And what's interesting is God does not offer any kind of explanation as to whether another method of helping Paul not be proud would have worked. God doesn't lack imagination, right? Surely you might want to say, does it have to be this? I mean, why is this messenger of Satan, whatever that is, and that language, I think, is at least inclined to make us see the seriousness of the problem. Paul was in powerfully uncomfortable circumstances. So why is it that God chose to do that, to curb his pride? Well, I don't know. And importantly, God doesn't tell Paul why either. He just says, this is what I'm doing. He offers no explanation, no apology, and he makes no defense. Which leads us to one of the lessons we were learning earlier, how important it is to trust in the wisdom of God in ordering our affairs. So what response are you going to make? God, if you will tell me, then I will understand. Which is really just another way of saying, if you will explain yourself, then I'll determine whether this is justified. That's really all we're saying when we say we want an explanation, is we want to let God know that we're open to justifying him. God says, Paul, no, of course I know it's difficult, but I'm not going to explain myself, and I'm doing this for your own good. Trust in God's wisdom. So the answer that God gives Paul is not that I want to see you squirm, right? He doesn't say that. He says, this is what your life is going to be like, but it's okay. But it's not okay. It hurts. It's difficult. I don't want this. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. It is okay. Why? Because my grace is sufficient. We're going back to this idea of grace being the instrumental tool here. So my grace is sufficient. Sufficient for what? What's the sufficiency of grace? How is it operating? Sufficient to accomplish the claims we looked at earlier. To be content. To have the strength to hold up under. And to escape whatever temptation those circumstances bring. When God says, my grace is sufficient for you, he's saying, you don't have to sin. You're free. I've got you covered. You will have the strength you need to move forward. And that's what grace does. 
So let's think about the way we think about grace. By grace alone, one of the five solas. It's embedded in our culture. But what do we mean by that? How do we think about this word grace? There's, I think, a number of ways we can look at it. Is it something that you see as being active in your life? Or does it have a passive role? Is it forensic? That God is kind to us because of the work that Christ did. Well, that's true. And God is good to us because of the uh, representation we have in Christ. And all that's true. That's That's a bit forensic to think about it that way. But does your inside voice, when difficulty comes, to say, God has enabled me. Is that how you would explain grace? By grace, I mean God has enabled me. Well, enabled you to do what? Well, to be holy, to fellowship with him, to put your mind on him, to rest, all those things. When you think about grace, it's good to think about God's covenant with us, his goodness, his mercy, his goodwill toward us, his loving kindness, and all those things are true. But how about the influence upon which he exerts upon our soul? How about the Spirit coming to actively change each and every one of us? Is that part of grace? Yeah, absolutely it is. When you think of difficult circumstances, do you think I can rely on God's Spirit coming to change me? Where my own disposition or inclination would be, I can't do this. And that's certainly what Paul was doing. Paul's free to confess, I can't do this. Three times I talked to God about it and said, look, you have got to change my circumstances. God says, no, I can change you. I can make you different. You don't have to be the same. I don't think Paul got it after the first time. I don't think he got it after the second time. It was sometime after the third time that God talked to him about this. We don't know the timing of all that. But God is telling Paul, I've got a powerful exertion upon your soul that I'm working on. You can be sufficient, full, enough. You can be satisfied in what I'm doing. You can be all of those things. You can have strength. You can have power. You can be endued with strength. It'll be inside you. You can possess this. You can say, I am strong. I have been enabled and I have power. Those are the, those are the words we, we get our English word dynamite from this word. Dunamis. Sticks of dynamite. I don't know how. I, I doubt that's what the Greeks had in mind, but they had real power in mind. So these aren't punchlines. These aren't just tags thrown out. Paul is saying there's something palpable about God's spirit, his grace working in us, that has real power and sufficiency to it. Genuine power and sufficiency. So just imagine if we, if we only had a mechanism to appropriate that sweet and holy influence of God in our life by enabling us to be strong and fortified. I wonder if there is a mechanism like that. They want to know what we call that mechanism? 
the means of grace. Right? It's a good way of thinking about it. Here, we will all be sitting at a table to experience the means of grace, the real power of God. We're going to see it before then in a baptism, the means of grace, the power of God. We're going to experience it in worship today with prayer, with singing, with the preaching, the hearing, the listening to God's word. These are all real and powerful things. So, what does grace do in us? It's, Paul says, God told me my grace is sufficient. What is that power going to look like? You, you going to turn in the Incredible Hulk that came up in our conversation? Are you, are you just going to get pushed to the edge and break free and rip your jeans and rip your shirt off and turn green and be able to do anything and overcome any foe? No. <laughs> That's not it. It hadn't worked so far. It hadn't worked so far. Well, I just started a few things here to remind you of what grace does so that you don't look for these fantastical green elements, but look inside as to what you should reasonably expect the Christian life to produce. So the first one is we learn to think better of God. We learn to think better of God. God transforms our minds. Our knowledge of his goodness, mercy, loving kindness grows to fill a larger part of our mind, displacing the doubts and censures that previously grew there. Your mind is a fertile garden of flowers and weeds. You need better cultivation. And one way to grow in grace is to simply learn to think better of who God is. When Paul said, I need this gone, and God said no, At some point, Paul had to say, you know, I can trust him because he's good and he's wise. It's not my plan. I wouldn't have done it this way. But this is the way God sees fit. Secondly, he renews our disordered desires. He grants us hearts which want the lovely things and gives us a distaste of that which is wretched. You can't trust your desires. You can't trust the things inside you that you want to be true. But in God's grace, he transforms those desires, renews our hearts. How about he enables our will? The old man's put to death. Sin no longer reigns. The old man doesn't control our responses as before. We can act differently now. We can actually decide not to sin. And as simple as that sounds... When you think back over the different kinds of failings during the week or the past months, how much of that might have been averted had you just simply chosen not to do those things, chosen not to say those words or think those thoughts? If you just said, no, that's poison. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to cultivate something better in the garden. Sin no longer reigns. You don't have to be a slave to sin. How about he warms our hearts through the bonds of affection? God unites us not to an idea, but to himself. And he says, this is what my grace is doing. I want you to treasure me like I treasure you. They're valuable. God's valuable. He wants us to see that. And how about he increases our fear of him? New ways in life in which we can behold and apprehend a holy God. 
grace enables us to see that more and more. There's a lot of work that needs to be done across all of these sections here, these five different things. The progress is never uniform, right? Sometimes we think better thoughts, sometimes we don't. Sometimes our desires are stronger, our will is stronger, sometimes it isn't. It takes a lifetime to build this garden that God wants us to grow. We stumble, we fall, find out we've been cultivating a weed. We thought it was a flower, turned out it wasn't. Not very good at plants. So you got weeds, happens. Paul had to learn it. He had to learn it because God was proving him, trying him through a variety of conditions. I'm sure there were lessons that Paul had to revisit. He doesn't go into those things, but it would be silly to think that he learned it the first time around. Certainly didn't learn it the first time he prayed and it wasn't answered that God would remove this. He had to go back and pray again until God set him straight. So what will it take to convince you that God will accomplish this work in your life. So remember, at the start of the class, I was telling you, I want you to see this picture of contentment and think, yeah, that's something I'd like for myself, but I'm not sure I can get there. I look at the brochure and I think, lovely spot to vacation, but we'll never get there. I think you can get there. We look at another passage here in Philippians, Philippians 1, 3 to 6, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, being confident to this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that work entail? It's a lot of things. One of the things it entails is for you to be of a sound mind, to be content, to be happy, satisfied. He's confident that Jesus, who began this work, is going to accomplish his work. And how about the evidence he gives from Romans 8? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Well, the one thing that he promises to give us is himself, to draw us close to him, to fulfill those mandates given in the garden. God says, I want you to be about this business, and in so doing, you're going to learn a lot about me. You're going to be mine. I'm going to disclose myself to you. If God would send his own son to die, will he not fulfill all these things? Will he not give himself to us? I mean, God loves us. He gave us his son. The spirit indwells us. He hears our prayers. He delights in you. He delights in us corporately. Why would we ever wonder if there will be sufficient help and power in our time of need so that we can glorify and enjoy him? Why Why would you wonder if there'll be help Paul says, I've got all kinds of strength and power now because of what Christ has done, because of the influence of the Spirit in my life. I can do this. I'm going to close this section with something I found very helpful. Uh, If we need a slogan for strength and power, we should have Westminster Strong. That should be our slogan, Westminster Strong. And I was reminded of this in the Catechism, larger catechism, question 75, what is sanctification? Just here are some of these emphases about sanctification for our life. Sanctification is a work of God's grace. It's done in time, right? Through the powerful operation of his spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto us, renewing us in the whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance and all other saving graces put into their hearts, And these graces so stirred up, increased and strengthened so that they more and more die unto sin and rise unto 
newness of life. There's, it's a powerful operation of God's Spirit. That's strength and power. That's how you're going to get it. God's committed to you. He'll bring it about. It'll be done in time. It's going to be put into your hearts and then stirred up, increased, and strengthened. That's a lovely picture of the goodness of God to help us be of sound mind so that we can acquire contentment. All right, that went on for a while. Before we get on to the last segment, I'll take time for some questions or comments. Okay, Um, running short on time, so we're going to uh, move through this a little quicker. The next, next section's titled, Be Sensible. We're going to look at that twice. Be sensible. Um, as we've discussed the value of the work God did in the garden to make life good for us, and then the fall, we use phrases like thorns and thistles. Um, headwinds is a, another word I've used to describe some of the things that happen in our life uh, that make life difficult. Paul talks about messengers of Satan, his metaphors and euphemisms being put forth. Um, and none of those really adequately describe the difficulty of the hardships we have in our life. Uh, one of the phrases that is common um, in thinking about difficulties is hard providences. This is a phrase we, I I hope everyone has at least heard, and it's to describe a set of circumstances that bring some sort of pain or loss or um, uncertainty or grief. And if we we are committed to the idea that it's, it's Jesus who is upholding, directing, and disposing and governing of all things, then we then we move into the idea that whatever he's doing right now is just hard. It's difficult. So, Hence the origin of the phrase. Uh, so providences are hard sometimes, and calling them thorns and thistles can be helpful, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really help us communicate the degree of difficulty, does it? I mean, it doesn't make sense to put it on a scale. Of, well, in your ordinary course of providence, where are we at between a 1 and a 10? That, that doesn't seem to make sense either. So I want to address a question that comes about because of hard providences. So there is some serious difficulty in your life, some grief, whatever the problem might be, however hard it might be. How is it that you can respond to that difficulty without taking sin along for the ride? So if you think about it from this perspective, you've already got one problem, this difficulty, health, grief, whatever the problem is. You've got a major difficulty in your life, enough that it smacks and it hurts. That's your first problem. The question now is, are you going to take sin along for a ride and end up with two problems? You've already got one. Are you going to multiply them? Are you going to add to them? And we need to avoid the idea that being sensible of our condition is wrong. It's good to be sensible of your condition, but to do it in the right way. So 
We are not Stoics. You don't want to define yourself by what you're not, but we have to right now. We are not Stoics. Pastor Watson says, whether a Christian may be sensible of his condition, this is in a section on objections, and yet be contented. Can I be sensible of my condition and still be contented? And he said, yes, for else he's not a saint, but a Stoic. That's from Pastor Watson. And he, there's examples given throughout all the scripture. I didn't think it'd be important that we go through them all. But for instance, Psalm 130 or 130, verse 1, out of the depths I cried to you. That's not a description of, of the psalmist altitude, right? I mean, he's, he's using a metaphor here to say, God, this is a bad problem and it is difficult. And so I'm crying to you. So I want to read a quote about uh, Stoicism to help us understand why we are not Stoics. Christian contentment is not Stoicism. Stoicism teaches that whether you are experiencing pain or pleasure ought to be a matter of utter indifference to you. But Christian contentment is not a matter of not caring. It's not the absence of caring, but rather the presence of something. Faith in God who apportions all things for his glory and our good. Contentment is the presence of faith, trust, joy, hope, and stamina. It's not the absence of pain or difficulty. So we don't encounter these hard providences and find the solution to them is to push away the pain and discomfort of them so that we can become utterly indifferent to the hurt of our fallen world. If you do that, you're not learning contentment. You're not a saint. You're a budding stoic. That's the point that Pastor Watson is making here, is that I'm sure in his experience he saw people who were trying to get relief from the pain by becoming utterly indifferent to the pain. But if your goal is to become utterly indifferent to the pain, what you're really doing is becoming utterly indifferent to the God who brought the pain. There's a connection between those, and you can't escape it. That pain didn't appear out of nowhere. Now, if you're tempted to be a stoic, don't become a fatalist. That pain came from someone for a purpose. There's a a great need for all of us to learn to talk to God about pain. We have to learn how to express it. We have to learn how to converse with him about it. There's a sense in which if you don't, you're sort of denying what he's made obviously clear. If God's the one that brought pain, surely he knows it's painful. And if you're unwilling to talk to him about it, what are, you, what are you saying about that circumstance? He already knows, and he expects you to talk to him about what's going on in your life. But if you won't do that, what are you accomplishing? God meant for it to be painful. Talk to him about it. Tell him it hurts. Cry to him from out of the depths. There is no virtue in enduring a painful trial faithlessly. There's no virtue in that. There's no virtue in trying to get through this to say, God brought this difficult circumstance into my life and I made sure 
I never felt or complained about it. There's no virtue in that. It's not even acknowledging the goodness of God and what he's doing in your life. Now, exhibiting stamina or endurance in a trusting relationship with a loving God is a virtue, even if you can't understand the circumstances for which they were brought into your life. So we'll, we'll stop that section there. I think there's enough being said. Being sensible, part one. Let's be sensible in part two. We live outside of Eden, obviously, and we need to remember that not only are there these thorns and thistles, these difficulties, but there is sin lurking at the door. Back in Genesis 4, Cain had an opportunity extended to him, which could have saved him a heap of trouble. He was angry, if you recall, about his offering not being accepted, right? He was upset about that. And Abel's offering was accepted. His offering was not. And God comes to him and brings some words of wisdom to him. And he says, if you do well, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God senses Cain's um, anguish, his, uh, the displeasure he felt and the disapproval he felt about his offering. And there's a sense in which it's mercy to come to him and talk to him about his anger. And what does he tell him? He gives him clear words of instruction. There's sin lurking right over there. And it's waiting for you. So what's the problem? Cain's not in his right mind. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't like what's happened. He's not in control of his faculties. And God says, you need to rule over this. You need to govern yourself. Because there's a greater problem. You, you started this episode with one problem. You didn't do things the way I told you to do it. Now you're about to have a second problem and I'm warning you that there is something lurking right over here. So what do we do? It's hard to fight a battle if you don't have your wits. It's hard to fight. It's hard to fight it well. So God extends this promise of ruling over sin, but not with a state of mind that's full of anger and and frustration. So again, let's go back to Watson, Pastor Watson here. And he has these two wonderful um, quotes here that I think are helpful. And he says, but methinks I hear some bitterly complaining and saying to me, alas, how is it possible to be contented? The Lord had made my chain heavy. He's cast me into a very sad condition. Now this is a pastor speaking, right? I mean, he's He's saying, people are coming to me and they're saying, I don't think I can be content because of this great difficulty that God has imposed on my life. And so what's the counsel? There is no sin, but labors either to hide itself under some mask or if it cannot be concealed, then to vindicate itself by some apology. The sin of discontent I find very witty in its apologies. We must lay it down as a rule that discontent is a sin so that all the pretenses and apologies wherewith it labors to justify itself are but the painting and dressing of a strumpet. That's helpful. 
So think about it for a moment. We've got this difficult condition, set of circumstances in our life, and what are we tempted to do? To say, I know I should be content. I know I don't really have a right to be discontent, but in this case, let me present an apology for why I should be content or I'm allowed to be content. And Watson's comment is, wow, sin's clever. Its desire is for you. Of course you're going to think that. But couple this with this idea of being sensible of your sin in the first case. I know you feel this pain. It hurts. But don't let that begin an apology for why you should sin. You've got to be of your right mind so that you don't become consumed by the sin lurking at the door. And his observation is that the sin of discontent is witty. It's smarter than you think it is. It's going to lurk in all kinds of places. So we'll close with this idea on the cunning of sin. You're going to find yourself, we're going to apply it, take, we're, going to, we're going to use the advice of Watson and apply it today. You're going to find yourself in difficult circumstances. I can assure you of that. At some point, you're going to find yourself hurt, frustrated, angry, grieving, lamenting for any number of things. It's going to happen. You're not going to expect it. You're not going to see it before it happens. It's going to catch you by surprise in all likelihood. You could be completely overcome, but you need to fortify yourself. And you need to fortify yourself in advance so that you do not become prey to the desire of sin. Now, sin is never going to come knocking on the door. It's too smart for that. It's going to cloak itself in an apology of some sort and to say, you've got a right. There are two things, and only two we're going to conclude with today, but there are two things you can do to be prepared in advance for when those difficult circumstances come. And the first is, you can trust God will use his word to instruct you. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. God said. Look at Proverbs 4. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. She will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. You don't know what to do. And you can't think about it the right way because it hurts or it's difficult. So what do you do? You turn back to a rule that is in effect at all times. That's, that's our first piece of advice is build your life upon your understanding of God's word. It's your only rule for faith in life. There will come a point when your wits will be dimmed and you need to be able to fight back. And what's the second piece of advice? Come see your elders. Come talk to them about that. And if in your bruising, they tell you, be careful about the sin of discontent, know in advance you should trust them. Pastor Watson wrote a book about this. And some of the things we're going to look at next week are examples of people who were coming to him saying, this thing happened. And he said, be careful. You're about to be outwitted by the desire for sin. You can be content in the midst of this grief. 
don't let your first problem birth a second problem. And you need somebody who's not in that grief or in that hurt to say, wait a minute, I'm spotting some deception here. You need to be careful you don't sin. And that's where your elders come in. Your elders love you. They're going to help you. They're going to help you through that grief and that difficulty. And they're also going to help you by keeping you from sinning. That's a good thing. Don't be deceived. Sin lurks at the door. That was a lot, quickly. Might be a lot to digest, but we'll take your comments and questions. It is simple in one way, yeah. Right. It's not complicated. Simple doesn't quite describe it. I agree. It's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. Hard provinces. Dark provinces is another one. Sure. That's right. Well, it, it is. And what, when we describe something as a hard providence, we're describing it from our perspective, not from God's uh, motivation. He, he, he's not, which is why we, we had that excerpt a couple lessons ago about God is not a cruel tyrant waiting to see how he can get us to squirm, uh, to bring some freakish delight out of it. No, he's a loving father. I don't, know what, I don't know what Paul was complaining about. I don't know what the difficulty was. But it was difficult. And, and, and God just never explained himself. But he did promise him things. You've got power, dunamis. You've got dynamite. That's good. Anything else? Well, you know, while simple is often associated with being easy. It's not. If you think about it, uh, climbing the staircase to the 100th floor is very simple. But not easy. That's right. Yep. Any other questions or comments? That first set of verses in Philippians 4.13 you know, it's the words that I latched onto was the power of Christ. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 
huge difference in who you surround yourself with and what you're listening to, what you're reading, who's speaking into your life. It's just a huge difference. Uh, the desire for sin is for you, but you need to rule over it. You need to rule over it. All right, let's pray.